Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale and I am your host, a writer and film critic. I am going to be talking to Thomas M. Purr today. He is an academic and writer. Uh, he's published widely and he's just got a new book called Fate in Film, A Deterministic Approach to Cinema. Um, it's a really interesting book. It looks at a fascinating swathe of films from the Coen brothers to Christopher Nolan. Um Lucrecia Mattel, uh, lots of brilliant, uh, Stanley Kubrick, lots of brilliant uh, filmmakers and a really interesting concept, which, as you will see from our conversation, or as you will hear from our conversation, uh, is applicable to so much in cinema. And indeed, the whole idea of cinema itself seems wrapped up with an idea of freedom, determinism, fate. So really fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you do, please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. If you could drop reviews, that would be great. I am also available for interviews or whatever. If you have your own podcast or you wish to uh, um, promote the, our podcast, that would be super. That would be super duper or fan dabby dozy, depending on your uh, preferred adjective of choice. Um, you can follow me at Twitter at Dr. John T, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y, where I tweet far too much. So you might want to follow me, mute me, and then follow me and mute me and unmute me when you when you feel like it, because I understand Twitter is a disease. I think Twitter is a, is a, is a, a pathology. Um, I mean, I get a lot from it, especially humor, especially film recommendations. It's wonderful in that sense, but in some, if there was one invention that I would 
disinvent that might be oh wait a minute nuclear bombs yeah sorry nuclear bombs i i, I disinvent nuclear bombs anyway uh enough of me jabbering away because the conversation is going to be worth listening to you want to get straight to that um so enjoy the conversation a similar experience to you actually because I'd been I'd been writing articles for different publications here and there um, online magazines and so forth for for some years and then kind of looking back at on them I I realized that a lot of them either explicitly or implicitly had to do with with this idea of fate or um, uh, determinism or characters' lack of freedom, or you know their their delusion that they control their lives, and I kind of realized after the fact that I'd been writing about that, um, I guess kind of subconsciously for for years, and that's when I had the idea that there there might be a book here because mm. um, I kept I just kept revisiting this idea, and I think the reason that I kept revisiting it is because in my mind at least it's it's so prevalent in contemporary film, especially contemporary genre film. And because you mentioned, you know, the ending being the beginning. And as soon as you said that, I thought, you know, the first shot of Midsummer, mm. and the the painting, um, that the sort of medieval looking uh, painting that maps out the entire narrative so that 10 seconds into the movie, you've kind of seen the whole movie the the whole narrative is is presented to you as a still image almost um which just emphasizes that that everything you're about to see is already there it's already happened um literally too because the the film is complete the the whole thing is is wrapped up in a you know in a film canister the beginning and the middle of the and the end are they're all there and um this idea that this idea that we're experiencing a movie in real time that 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 false movement because obviously what you're really looking at is just rapidly moving still images and then that 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 idea kind of dovetails with this with this uh, theory or this fear that time itself is very much the same that the past and the present and the future all essentially exist already now and um the movement through time that we perceive is ultimately an illusion yeah yeah that, i mean you 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 quote quite quite a, a couple of scientists in the in the book and and brian green comes up as uh, as one of your sort of examples in terms of thinking about time and uh, from a f- physicist's point of view um mm. i find that really that, that's that's, that's a, when i'm not reading about films or, or reading novels <laughs> then uh, that's the sort of stuff i'm reading and and baff- i'm being baffled by but in a creative and enjoyable fashion um i mean that that whole i remember um a, a really good lecture about poetry from christopher ricks that i attended i, I was I had the opportunity to attend at liverpool the, the way that film in in the film, in the films themselves, and then also just in in the medium as a whole, oh, I so, think oh, really um, so, sorry, really Thomas. connects with. 
I think yeah. I, I think I lost you for a, for a little while then. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know what happened. It's. It, I think I, I'm not sure exactly when when I lost you. Uh, I think about thirty seconds ago. It. it, it oh, okay. Um, so when we were when we were talking about science science books. Th- yeah, exactly. I I started mentioning something about science, and then I think I talked on thinking, and it had frozen. So I I, I didn't notice until just now that. Oh. <laughs> that was that I was blathering on. Yeah. No, it wasn't that. It was also it was also it was funny because I said something about Brian Green and I was expecting you to go, ah yeah, yeah, of course I mentioned guy. And and instead you just sort of looked blank and now I've realized that <laughs> that blank expression was the frozen image of you on the video. I I wasn't I wasn't just uh silently assessing the situation exactly like tom cruise in magnolia wait a second my, <laughs> my, my camera's doing it now as well um yeah sorry so like, l- let's go from from the brian green so so yeah you 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 use that as a as one of your sort of reference points yes so his book uh specifically the fabric of the cosmos was really helpful for me and i'll preface anything i'm about to say with i am anything but a science expert and um the science that i draw from is is really i guess like popular science books like you like you said the that kind of general reader text um about you know time and black holes and the universe and i just find all that really fascinating and the metaphor that green uses in his book when he's when he's tackling this idea about whether all of time past present future sort of already exists as this discrete object almost um the, he uses two metaphors he compares it to a bread loaf and he also sorry he compares it to a bread loaf and he also compares it to a frozen river that you know there's this there's this idea that time is like a flowing river um and he there's even that makes me think of like stream of consciousness writing even there's this idea that that your lived experience is like this malleable flowing experience but that it might in fact be a frozen river and um he even in that very same book fabric of the cosmos he even makes a, a connection to film he says that you know like the like the still frames in in a film the different time slices in the time river or the different sl- time slices in the the time loaf pick your metaphor um are it's it's the same sort of idea that they mm. they coexist mm-hmm. it's like this temporal simultaneity that is um that we're that is just sort of beyond our perception we you know, in, in theory, it, it makes sense, but it's it's difficult to it's difficult to square that theory with the notion that we can change our futures or that we have you know total uninhibited freedom in in what we do and where we go and how we think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like the the um, you know, it's like a dance. If 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 a you you know the dance exists. You know that it's choreographed, and there are certain movements, and there's a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, mm-hmm. 
but at any, any point during that dance, you are making the decisions to create that that moment. Um, you know, the, those series of movements. Uh, yeah. no, I, I find that fascinating. So one example you use in the introduction, which is a, a brilliant moment of, I, I don't know if Freud, I, I, it would enter into the Freudian idea of the uncanny, but that idea of mm. uh, in The Shining, the you, you have this flashback in the sense that, I mean, as a viewer, you have a flashback. When you see yeah. the photograph on the wall, you sort of suddenly go, oh, how many times has he walked past that? How many times right. have we seen that? Have we yeah. walked past that? Um, yeah. Could I rewatch it and zoom in and find him <laughs> already there? Yeah. Oh, I love, I love that shot. Um, and one of the, that was, that was the realization I had while writing the book. That was kind of like an, an aha moment for me while I was writing because the, it's such a baffling shot and i think i think we're kind of built as movie watchers when you see that scene your your kind of knee-jerk reaction is oh okay he's been he's been like sucked into the past mm. he he's um he's been like absorbed by the by the hotel somehow um but then like you said i i think uh another possibility that is maybe less often discussed is the possibility that he's always been in the picture that, you know, the, the whole time that they were in the hotel and all the time leading up to the hotel. And it's not like he, he was sucked into the picture. He was always in the picture. And if mm -hmm. he was always in the picture, then, you know, like, like they say in the film, you've always been the caretaker. So he's, um, that's kind of a, an interesting way. I think that Kubrick, um, makes the the past and the future kind of feed into each other in a really interesting way. Mm, absolutely, and I, I don't remember that. So I'm saying this, and this might well be a, a, a misremembering, but I have a feeling that that ending with the photograph was kind of like a really last minute addition to to the uh, to the process of shooting. I'm not sure. Do you do you do you remember if that's the case or? I honestly don't. I'm not mm. sure. Um, that would be interesting to know. I do. I can't answer that question, but I do know that there was a cut, sort of epilogue that showed uh, that that's like Wendy in the hospital, I think, and then she's notified by the authorities that they that they couldn't find Jack's body in the snow. I mm. think was the mm. was the, the thing that they cut. Um, I and, think Roger and, Ebert and talks ball, about that in his review. Bounces apparently the ball bounces from the from, that Danny was playing with somehow. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, it turns up in the scene. I think I've seen that cut. I'm pretty sure I've seen that cut. Uh, oh, it exists. It's oh, out yeah, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an extended version. I think they might have even released it sort of relatively recently with one of the, yeah, you know, one of the anniversaries mm -hmm. that came up. I gotta check that out. Um, and. and I would love to see it, but at least thinking about it on paper, I'm glad they cut it. Because mm. um, I think it's – it's if you said, oh, like, you know, his body disappeared, ooh, that then that reinforces the – I would say, like, the kind of simpler interpretation that he was somehow sucked into the past. And I think that if, if you – if there was the focus on whether or not his physical body is still in the present, it would kind of uh, 
it would kind of go against this idea that maybe he's always been in the photograph. So I think the implications of of not knowing what happens to the body and not being quite sure why or how he's in the picture is far more, like you said, it kind of taps into the uncanny and it's far more frightening um, and, and like baffling. Mm. And so I think that's, but I do want to see that. I, um, I'm a little embarrassed to say, I didn't know that that cut existed. I thought, I thought it was like stuff of movie lore that it was like a lost scene or something. I have to look that up. No, I, yeah, I'm, pre- I'm, I'm pretty sure it is, and I'm pretty sure I've seen it, although I might be misremembering and I've seen clips of it or, or or something like that. And I'm pretty sure the thing about the discussion about the ending is in Michel Simon's book or the, the sort of series of interviews that he did with with Simon, um, mm-hmm. which is a, a brilliant book, one of my first ever um, uh, film books that I, I remember getting out of the library as a kid and reading. Um, oh, wow. Very yeah, cool. It's, it's a beautiful book. Beautiful. Uh, What's it called again? I think it's just called Kubrick, but the author is Michel Simon, the French okay. journalist from Postif, who who and and guest of the podcast, previous guest of the podcast. Oh, okay, um, cool. So, uh, yeah, he interviewed everybody. He's legendary. He's, you know, he's in his eighties now, but he's um, from. He was a, one of the last people to interview Terence Malick during his. Uh, his oh wow! Days of Heaven um period uh oh, man. He must, yeah. they must have so many great stories yeah yeah they they do they i mean i love i love those uh there's there's a, a british journalist called Derek malcolm who's a who's who again is probably in his late 70s um mm-hmm. and i meet him every now and again at festivals and he just has you know he has stories from when being a journalist was a totally different thing you know yeah to... yeah not i'm not 90 percent um line right yeah yeah exactly not not sort of blogging and uh and and all the rest of it yeah um oh yeah go ahead sorry no i was just gonna coming coming back to the to the idea of there being an alternative ending as well does that how does that sort of um uh, go into your idea because the idea that you know a, a a a, a world exists in the film which is sort of frozen and there but then if you have like there's this cut and that cut and the other cut and the endings change radically yeah how how does that play into that idea of fate hmm that's an interesting question um i think i think it really speaks to how what's what the what the filmmaker decides to show or not show can have such a a drastic effect on the meaning of the film or the potential meanings of the film so i think um to tie it to the idea of fate i might say that that the in this case you know his decision to cut that final scene um i don't know that the first i'm kind of thinking of like the director or the editor or whomever is like this godlike figure that they're that they're having this this control over you the viewer that um you know if they leave the the scene in that makes you that sort of forces you to think a certain way about what the movie means and if they take that very same scene out that also affects in a very different way 
what you think the movie means. So I guess I guess my convoluted response to that would be um, that it sort of, it sort of emphasizes the control, like the deterministic control that the artist has over their audience in terms of what they what they decide to show or not or not show to you. I'm not mm. sure if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. It does. It's absolutely. I mean, it's um, it it just it just seems to it seems to be that the the whole thing, like it it seems to go against. And this is why I like that. I I really enjoyed reading the book, and I really enjoyed thinking about these things. Uh, mm. that the the that the book provoked. Um, there's such a sense at the moment that watching stuff the the primary emotional response is surprise that's the thing that's got to be preserved you know i'm not going to watch any trailers mm. i'm not going to see anything no spoilers no spoilers i right. because i want and and you know reaction videos of people watching stuff and you know a surprise death on on well game of thrones has been and gone i expect but but right. that sort of moment and people are like oh my god what happened how did that happen yeah um and how that is a really recent sort of trend and and like you know mm-hmm. art is is much more about telling you exactly what's going to happen um yeah. and foreshadowing and showing you know this is the tragedy of hamlet it doesn't it doesn't end in a dance you know there's yeah. <laughs> this is a comedy of much ado about nothing it does end in a dance you know yeah and that's on the poster that before you right. got, you know, someone pointed out that Rocky Four, you know, I think it was me actually, but anyway, it, it, uh, <laughs> on on the poster of Rocky Four, he's it's the last shot of the movie. <laughs> oh, like, that's right, with the, with the with the flag draped over him, right? Yeah, winning, you know, Rocky yeah. Four, come and see him win, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like... and that yeah, that's exactly it. And um, first, well, first of all, big fan of Rocky Four. I yep. love when. The, I love the robot. I love that he he convinces uh, Russia to stop being communists or whatever. It's a very it's a very emotional ending. But um, the that that's just it. Like when you mentioned spoilers, I talk about that a little bit in the conclusion of the book, and I agree with you. It, it's very it's definitely a a very recent phenomenon, and in a way. I think it it sort of like crystallizes how we we go into movies pretending as if it's more than pretending as if we don't know what's going to happen it's it's pretending as if we're experiencing it in real time like mm-hmm. we don't we don't want to I think the reason that spoilers bother a lot of people is because it breaks that illusion that when you sit down in the theater and watch the movie that you're seeing movement occur in real time and because a lot of the time spoilers really aren't that spoilery you know like if they if if you said um you know in in one of the bat, uh, one of the Superman or Batman movies, like the the Zack Snyder ones. If you were to say like, "Oh, Superman dies in one of them," then a, a super fan would get like really pissed that you spoiled that Superman dies. But it's like, well, if you, but if you're a, a, even a moderate fan of comic books, you know that Superman is going to die at some point. So it's it's less it's less that it's like a surprise and more that it it breaks that that illusion of um, 
of like real time movement. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a reinforced sort of um, naivety, uh, if you like, because I, I think of it in this way. Um, this doesn't necessarily apply to films exclusively. In fact, I, I think if if I went to see a, a comedian do a routine or a play, mm. and I had a great time and it touched me and it did all the things it needed to do, um, and then the next the next night. I accidentally went back. I went to another club, and it was the same comedian, and mm -hmm. he was doing the same routine. I, mm. I would feel betrayed, no matter how <laughs> no matter how nonsensical that reaction is, because yeah. you, you know he's doing a routine. He's a professional comedian. He's not just turned up and been spontaneously hilarious, right? But that spontaneity is something which you give that that presumption of spontaneity that presumption of yes. naive sort of like oh i don't know what's going to happen and, right. and and it's like and even as a critic you kind of have to sort of turn off a bit of your critical thing i mm -hmm. mean I, I read a review of a film recently and it said you know this character ends the way this character always ends in this kind of film and, hmm. and and it was like a social realist film, and it's like, yeah, you don't, you know, this guy's not gonna get, you know, uh, get onto a government training scheme and be fine. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's, it's only right. one way this is going. Um, yeah, and it's kind of like I felt a little bit that the the critic wasn't playing the game. It was like, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but yeah, you know, it's almost like an argument against genre because a genre mm. is about pretending that this thing is spontaneous but we all know it's going to end badly or well or whatever depending on the genre yeah for sure and i think what you said about seeing the same like accidentally seeing the same set again and feeling betrayed that kind of reminds me of of the remakes that mm. i talk about in the in there that i write about in the book um specifically the the like the carbon copy remake where a director to the best of their ability tries to replicate as close as possible, you know, shot for shot, an entire film. And so like I write about Gus Van Sant doing Psycho in 1998 and Michael Haneck doing uh, Funny Games again in America in 2007. And I think it's, it's kind of the same kind of the same idea because they're, they're in both cases, I think both both directors were very open in in publicity, for example, and saying like, my goal was to re truly remake it, shot for shot, and and yet that was kind of like a common criticism of those films, you know. And it's like, well, like you said, you're not if if you're going into it knowing that that's what they wanted to do. And then you 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 feel like betrayed by that. It's kind of like what you said. You're not playing the game. You're not playing. Mm. They're inviting mm. you to play this game, and you're you're kind of refusing to play it. Yeah, yeah. It's kind, kind, kind of like oh no, it's fake. The the Michael Haneke U.S. version of uh, Funny Games is fake because it's just a right. copy of the original. But the original yeah. was a fake. I mean, the original right. had a shot list and had a script and had a right. casting session and you know back and back and back. Exactly. Yeah.
And then especially funny games is especially interesting because obviously it has, it has that notorious remote control scene. So, um, so it's like, a the film, the original version of the film already has this self awareness built into it. And, and this deterministic theme built into it and that, you know, the family, the family's going to die. And there's nothing they can do about it. And even if the the mother shoots one of the killers in the chest, they can just rewind it and redo it because they're you know the family's fate is totally in the hands of of the two killers and totally in the hands of the filmmaker. And and then to remake that is is especially interesting. It's like a like a Russian doll of. Um, of like the film's self-awareness. It's like a copy of a copy, um, which I think is really interesting. And I think those, I think those remakes get, get a bad rap um, unfairly. I think the, the 2007 funny games and the, the 1998 psycho are, are like fascinating. Um, And I think, I think they're like their success hinges on the existence of the original their their reason for for existing is is based on um it's like dependent on something that's already out there so i that that whole idea i just think is really fascinating um and like you like you said it it breaks it breaks the illusion of spontaneity and i think maybe that's why some people reacted so strongly to them but you can't win because if you if you drastically remake something then people are going to be upset about that too um so there's a, i don't know there's almost something sort of self critical about those those carbon copy remakes because it's sort of in my mind it's sort of the filmmaker saying like oh you don't want us to mess with the the original okay you got it here's the original again yeah with Vince Vaughn <laughs> right <laughs> yeah uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna defend the uh, the Vaughn casting, but um, yeah, I, I I love those those movies. It's fun. It's fun watching them uh, to the to the best of your ability, you know, side by side. But um, yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put Vaughn up there with uh, with Perkins. I'm not gonna go that far. <laughs> but I mean, that's in a way. I found that casting really interesting because, you know, at that point in his career, Vince Vaughn was like swingers. You know, he was uh, this mm-hmm. sort of affable lunk. And, yeah. and you know, you pretty much a million miles away from from Perkins in, in sort of physical stature and mm-hmm. star power and all, all the rest of it. Um, I mean, at Funny Games, I, I do like the American remake. I think it makes more sense in America in america yeah. in american i'm not sure if that's a, a way of saying it but you know what i mean it's like <laughs> it, I, I the only problem i have with it is that it casts two actors who are very much um art house regulars in mm. naomi watts and tim roth and i think especially that stage of his career tim roth was doing a lot of art house work he was you know in Werner herzog films and whatnot um yeah. I think it would have been better if it had had Liam Neeson as the father, you know, or uh, or oh. Sylvester Stallone. I mean, because it, it really yeah. prefigures Taken. That's the that's what it is kicking against. It's kicking against the daddy, the daddy revenger. You know, the yeah, you know, you come after my family, <laughs> you know? and that kind of and that kind of fasting, or sorry, that kind of casting would would draw in 
more of the audience that I think he was trying to get. Yeah. You know, like the, cause you know, Hanukkah said the whole point for really his, his only reason almost for remaking it was to make it more accessible to the intended audience being Americans. And, um, and I think the, the film, like the remake would have been more successful if it was, if it was packaged in a way that would that would kind of trick the everyday moviegoer who goes to it thinking that they're going to see you know a taken and then just being blindsided by it um but it wasn't it wasn't like packaged and delivered that way in the United States it was very much it had like a pretty big release but it was very much um sort of advertised and and promoted as like a sort of art house film mm. so the I think I think it failed. I don't know who's to you know who's to blame for that in terms of I I think it's like a matter of marketing. Like they they mismarketed it to an art house audience when they should have been trying to like dupe, you know, maybe that's a a judgmental term, but to they were trying to uh, to trick people who just wanted to go and have like a fun time at the movies, and that would have been more effective in in getting his message across. But I think actually your choice of word there is is right, and and that's probably why they didn't market in that way because they didn't they didn't want to they didn't want to have a host of very angry people going okay you've mismarketed this to us we thought it was this and it's something else I think there's a I I think there was a a a, a thing there that wasn't necessarily accidentally mismarketed it was it was mm. probably quite consciously we can't have you know families turning up expecting to see bruce willis kick ass and uh <laughs> and, you know and they're just coming out and questioning their their existence. existence yeah exactly <laughs> and, uh, and i mean you know i mean go, going to the heart of your thesis you know um th- that this is a european view of determinism which american movies of vast over generalization obviously but tends with their sort of active proactive protagonists tend mm. to pragmatic resolution seeking people yeah. um you know uh would kick against you know it's not not you no know, we're not doomed there's always a solution there's always mm. uh yeah i mean look at steven spielberg's schindler's list you know who else could look at the holocaust and think yeah but what about the guys who got out you mm. know what yeah. about the, what about the escape plan you know there's always a way there's always a way yeah. which is like Really? It's interesting you it's it's interesting you bring up Schindler's list because uh doesn't Hannock like n- like really hate that movie? I've seen in um I think I saw in an interview that he he really he was upset by that movie and that mm-hmm. um that, that Spielberg was was like creating using using the Holocaust as a way to generate suspense. Mm-hmm is is i think what he took issue with mm. yeah i mean I, i've not i've not heard uh Hanager's take specifically that doesn't surprise me at all i would never in a million years have assumed that michael Hanneker would approve of a, a spielberg movie <laughs> except to okay. piss you off you know except okay. if it yeah although i did hear that um i read somewhere that I guess he was a big fan of Paul Schrader's Dog Eat Dog, which is really interesting because that is like the total opposite of the kind of movie you would expect him to like. Um, 
Oh, but Dog, Dog, Eat, Dog is still has, you know, the, the guy's screwed. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it still has a really pessimistic sort of view of the universe. That's um, true. What what about a big uh, uh, one of the 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 whether well, I, I want to go into some more of these films because the, the, one of the things that I loved about the book was there's such an excellent choice of movies that there it really mm. uh, keys in with a lot of the films that I'm interested in as well. So uh, yeah. John, Jonathan Slater, you you talk about his identity trilogy. Can you just explain a little bit what you mean by that? Oh sure. So um, the he only has three feature films. So it's a tr- it has to be a trilogy. So. Yeah, so it has to be a trilogy, and that's and that's it. What's your what's your next question? No, <laughs> the, uh, the it's so it's sexy beast birth and under the skin, and the superficially they seem to be very very different films. So sexy beast being a, a very stylish, um, sort of like poppy gangster film that's that's funny and and colorful um and has you know like a brit pop soundtrack We've got birth which is this you know very austere um melodrama about you know reincarnation and these these very like muted colors and um and it's it's a very romantic movie also i think um and then and then under the skin being as you know as far away from um from those as, as you can probably get you know under under the skin is as uh, is, is closest to something like an avant-garde film or um even like a silent movie um there's so little there's so little dialogue or so the the dialogue is almost like secondary to the to anything that you see that you see on the screen um and of course, there are three very different genres. So you've got the gangster film, you've got the you know the spiritual melodrama, and you've got the abstract science fiction film. But the the through line of for all three of them is that, and what I really attach to and I think is really fascinating is that all three of those movies, in some way, are about a, a protagonist who is trying to assume a new identity and fails to do so and that overarching theme i i don't think is a mistake or a coincidence um i think i think it's something that glazer is is tapping into um to kind of comment on whether or not it was a a conscious decision i think it's a, a commentary on how it's 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 impossible to become something that you're not like the um or very difficult to become something that you're not so mm. like in mm-hmm. in sexy beast um gal is trying to live the life of the you know the the retiree lounging by the pool but inevitably he gets sucked back into his gangster life and um Nicole Kidman's Anna in birth is is trying to move on with her life after her, her husband's death and um you know get married again and have another marriage and start a family and start this new life but she gets sucked back into her old her old romance when this you know this boy shows up claiming to be her reincarnated husband 
and then in Under the Skin, the the unnamed the unnamed alien um, attempts to attempts to live the life of a human. You know, she she kind of ditches her her mission of of seducing and harvesting men, and kind of goes off the grid and tries to to kind of kind of plays with this identity of of being of trying to be a human and then you know that fails they're you know they're 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 destroyed they're caught um so i just think it's i I think it's really interesting that when a when a filmmaker especially one who hasn't made a lot of films um has this series of of movies that seem very disparate but share this like core preoccupation with with the the difficulty of assuming a new identity and then so hence the you know what i what i call the his identity trilogy yeah yeah i mean that's um that that's so so interesting it's such a and it just makes me think of so many other ideas in terms of how how that relates to other films as well and also to to, mm. uh, to as glazed as a filmmaker so for instance other films i was thinking of unforgiven as being a good example of a film there where someone tries to carve out a new identity and ultimately is like no you're always going to be an alcoholic and a murderer and there's no way around right. that you know yeah um but also just as glazer as a filmmaker seems really interestingly postmodern in that sort of way of sort of quite comfortably taking on projects which seem to be very close to previous projects that have been so for instance when he does sexy beast it's it's really close to um the british gangster movie uh as typified by the long good friday and villain and all these films that we've had but it it really sits it feels like it sits very it's not in any way really trying to differentiate itself from them it's it's like no i'm totally embrace that yeah birth feels like it feels like now we're talking about ai like somebody has typed into an ai um you know uh a film by roman polanski circa rosemary's baby and he's mm. telling this story instead yeah know? yeah um and the same thing for Under the Skin feels like Nicholas Rogue's uh it, I mean they all feel like riffs of very specific films. It feels like uh, Nicholas Rogue's Man Who Fell to Earth. Um Yeah, for sure. And I got a chance to talk to Scarlett Johansson after uh, on the release of uh, Under the Skin and asked her, you know, did you did you watch The Man Who Fell to Earth as sort of David Bowie's sort of seems to be a little bit of that in your performance and she hadn't yeah. see, seen the film so it was uh, oh that's really interesting so that made for uh, that was, I mean it, you know um, I, it's it's really interesting to to sort of encounter filmmakers and people involved in cinema who who when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, for, for very good reasons. Don't spend as much time watching films as we do, you know? Because <laughs> they're having way too much fun being film stars, you know? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's fascinating. I... um. You're right, absolutely. That he he very much is aware of sort of like the the ancestry of the genre he's working in, right? And in many wow. ways, um, respects the expectations of that of that genre. You know, the under as, as strange and you know challenging as under the skin can be, um, it has the you know, it has the creepy music. It has the the scary harvesting scene. Um, you know, Sexy Beast has the the big, con, you know, complex, uh, clever heist. Um, Birth has, um, hmm. Birth has sort of like the the like strange uh, family dynamics that you would see in, like you said, like a Rosemary's Baby. Um, so I, I agree. I I always. Or, or even just even just like the haircut of the Mia Farrow yeah. haircut, you know. It's, Absolutely, um... yeah. And the and and how they explore, you know, motherhood and marriage, and you know the the um sort of the husband who who has you know maybe ulterior motives, and it's yeah, it's all there, but it's um but he plays with it too. So mm. I I like that. I, that's I think that's something that. I love about genre films is when when filmmakers kind of they they decide to play in that sandbox but they also mess around with it too. So mm-hmm. they got they got like one foot in tradition and another foot in in just like breaking breaking the rules in that tradition while somehow still honoring those rules. Mm-hmm. I mean a, another film that that sort of keys in with this idea of fate as well. Uh, and and does a similar thing to what you're describing. I think would be No Country for Old Men, the the Coen Brothers film, because mm, um, mm-hmm. you know, again, if you're the jaundiced critic watching that, you're thinking to yourself, okay, this guy's not gonna this this guy's not gonna survive this movie. There's no way right. he's surviving this movie. Right. And so you know, the the whole of the pursuit is is based on doom. You know. Yeah. Um, but then the play that That's you're a great t- example. The play that the twist and the play that you're talking about is that that final confrontation that you're expecting um yeah. hap- happens off screen and you, yes. you just come across yeah. the aftermath. It's like you want to follow these two stories, but there's no you know inevitability that you're gonna actually swap over to them at the right point. You're gonna yeah. be following the wrong guy when this happens. Right. Yeah. I love that. And I love um Speaking of like bucking those expectations of like the chase film, um, that Anton Sugar just like he just wanders off, and there's no like you said there's no big showdown. You might expect you know the 
the big confrontation between between him and uh, the Tommy Lee Jones character or or whatever. Um, but no, I mean he gets he gets in a car accident, totally by accident, uh, total coincidence, and wanders off, and then that's it. He's gone, um, and and that. But like you said, that's a that in many ways that's a film that is just embodies the genre too. It mm. has so many. Um, it's full of so many like unbearably suspenseful. Um, set pieces that that if you're a fan of the of the chase film or if you're a fan of the of the crime dra- drama there's plenty of stuff in that movie that you would just like eat up because oh, yeah. it's oh, it's just it's it like captures exactly what you would want from that genre but then also kind of pulls the rug out from under you in other respects yeah to- tommy lee jones is uh, a policeman on his last job and, and right. he's going to retire. And it's sort of so weird to see him actually retired. So, <laughs> I mean, that's the last scene. Right. The last scene is yeah. him going, what are you going to do today? Eh, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> no, no, I'm not a policeman. I had a dream last night. I've got, I've got yeah. time to tell you about this. I'm not going anywhere. So, yeah. you know. And that I think that the, the, the surprise of how that film ends is totally earned by the fact that you've seen Anton go on. And you, and so when you're watching Tommy Lee Jones, you know, prattle on about the dream, to, I mean, mm-hmm. I love that scene, but that's what he's yeah. doing. You're kind of, you're the, the genre person inside you, the, 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 the seasoned watcher of this kind of film is waiting mm-hmm. for the telephone to ring. Because mm. someone's going to ring and going to say, hey, you know that guy you were looking for? We just got to call it on the radio. Right, why, right. They're, why they're suddenly from New York and New Mexico now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm walking here. I'm walking. I got a telephone call. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you expect it. Yeah, exactly. Even though, even, even though you shouldn't. Like, you sh- you know, if you, you know you're in the Coen brothers' hands and you know that there's all sorts of like you said, with the scene with him wandering off, they're they're very much or the or the scene where you you do not see, um, uh oh, what's his name? Um, Josh Brolin. Main, Josh Brolin. You don't see Josh Brolin's death. Um, so there's all these very clear announcements that they're they're not here to give you what you think you're gonna get, but. But you're right. I agree with you that even even so, up to the very final moments, you're still expecting that phone call um, or that, you know, that twist where he shows up at the house or, mm. you know, whatever. Um, yeah, he goes out on the porch and he's sitting there. I hear you've been looking for me, Sheriff, you know. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or, you know, you hear the coin being flipped or something, right? And Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's the, the coin flip is, of course, sort of speaks to your sort of central thesis of, of like, you know, the idea of fate, the idea of, you know, there is this, it can go heads or can go tails and the way it's going to go, that coin has been traveling through its entire history. Right. To get to this point, right? Uh, you know, and I love the I love the um, the the wife character in that film when she refuses to call it, um, and it's such a powerful moment. And you you hear her, and you're like, yeah, like good for her, you know, like that's she's not she's not playing his game, 
but to not play the game is to still play the game. You know, like if if you refuse to play, he's still gonna play for you. He's gonna force you to play. Yeah, but that so that's. I I, I I see what you mean, and me as a complete moral coward would be like, oh screw it, heads. You know, what I mean, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna. I mean, I wish I was, but what she gives you is, I think, is a third way um, mm. to your to to your sort of the proposed idea of determinism, no freedom, or some room for freedom and 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 she carves out a sort of third route of like i i'm just not gonna give you the benefit of meaning i'm not gonna mm-hmm. give you meaning you know there was a brilliant holocaust film by uh the actor tim blake nelson called the gray zone uh, oh i, I haven't you... seen that right i want to well, there's a superb uh, moment in that where um, someone is um, they're having an argument. Uh, uh, one of the Jewish sort of doctors, basically, who has been assisting in the in the medical experiments in the camp mm-hmm. as a way of surviving. You know, obviously, that choice is not a, a choice that is just an open choice for him. Right. And he's trying to justify himself and he's sort of saying, well, you know, maybe what if something, even in the midst of all this horror, what if I, we discover something that will save lives or something like that? And the right. other, his fellow prisoner says, no, you're, you're doing the worst thing in the world. You're giving them a meaning. You're giving them, mm. you know, you're giving them a kind of justification by participating. Yeah. And and it's that similar thing of like, okay, the world can be chaotic and arbitrary and cruel and nasty, but, mm-hmm. I but but it can do it without my without my participation. Yeah, you know, and and that I think that's a. I mean, I think that's I, I totally agree with you. That's the most heroic moment of that movie, is to just yeah. is just just pull out of it, even at, yeah. even though you know it's it's he's going to kill you. He's, you know, he's... and that makes me. This might be an odd connection, but it almost makes me think of. Uh, that character in Hamlet who like the like the the little side character who turns out to have this big heroic role in the in the narrative um there's i think it's like a guard or something it's been a while since i've read hamlet but there's um there's a guard who comes out and has like two lines and is like wait like you don't have to do this and then is is quickly like you know taken away or or whatever um and I think I think C.S. Lewis wrote an essay about how that was like his favorite that that char- that character who has two lines in Hamlet is like his favorite character in all of Shakespeare because he was the one to to be like no it doesn't have to be this way um, so yeah those are those like those I live for those like little moments in films um, like the that tiny little like blip that that shows a character kind of going, I don't know, going against the grain or, or like calling out the, this, this like vast controlling system for what it is. They can't escape it necessarily, but they, they uh, exercise some control at least by being aware of it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, um, yeah, it's almost as if 
it it goes with the meta idea that we're watching a film with characters reading lines, doing something, and trapped inside a plot and inside a genre, inside a narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. I mean, horror films, and and this will bring us to to some other movies that you mentioned. I remember there was a film. I, I miss it. It doesn't happen so much these days. I really miss it when you would hear about a film and not see it for ages. You know, you'd you'd hear so, so everybody was talking about Wolf Creek. And they'd, everybody had seen it and they were talking about it. But for some reason, I was in Italy, I, I couldn't get And somebody mm. finally turned up with a copy of the DVD and I watched it. Yeah. And um, everybody had talked and talked and talked about how gruesome the last half an hour is. Mm. And uh, But what I thought found incredible about that film uh, that is that you the first hour or so, it's like one of those, it's like Psycho or... Um, audition maybe that it starts as a generically as one thing and then shifts into something else so at the beginning it's just kind of a road movie and you're getting to know these characters and the characters are very well acted and very well written and very realistic and i found myself because i knew this isn't this isn't going well they're trapped in the horror genre right right Uh, can't this be a comedy (laughs) do we have to do we have to go there you know yeah it seems so nice. You know, you know what you're. Well, I, that's. I love how you said that. Trapped in the genre. That's that's just it. Um, I don't know. That makes me think almost of. I know I mentioned it already, but it, it makes me think of um, of Midsummer again. That, my minus the the opening sequence, which is very horrific. A good chunk of the movie is 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 like a like an exploration of a culture. You know, it's almost like a, an ethnographic um, analysis of this of this subculture, um, and it's funny too. It's mm-hmm. really funny in in at points. And then you know you like the you like the characters, you care about them, you you enjoy like hanging out with them. You know the the like ignorant you know, friend who's like vaping during the ceremony is, is funny. And, you know, he's, he's kind of a jackass, but you like him and, but you know that it's not going to end well for him. <laughs> you know that he's going to become the skinned fool at some point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's the, and that's, I mean, it could, could that be, be what genre is almost? It's sort of like locking in sort of a, a formula and an algorithm of fate. It's like, this is, you know, this is this is the equation, and the characters are just going to drop in as the a, you know, as the element, mm-hmm. the alg- algebra, you know, and this. So this guy is the victim, and this is the, you know, uh, oh, what was the yeah. film I I watched uh, yesterday? I watched Brightburn, and the black sheriff mm. in Brightburn has exactly the same role as the uh, as the chef in uh, Hanoran Holoran. Uh, in The Shining, you know? Oh, okay, yeah. You're, this black guy is just turning... And the fact that he's black as well, I don't think is coincidental. I think there's a yeah. sort of like the sacrificial sort of aspect yeah. of it. And it, it's sort of like this guy is just is going to show up two-thirds of the way through as the, I'm here to rescue the situation, and whack. Right. He's, you know, and then spo- immediately yeah, die, sp- yeah. Spoiler for, you know, he's a blood bag, just heading yeah. for for the for his execution and it, it, it's that same sort of 
idea of inevitability. So you, you, yeah, it's like the guy in Star Trek realizing he's putting on a red shirt. You know, it's like, ah, oh, shit. I guess right. I'm this guy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, well, I, that uh, that's. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. Of it's, you know, it's this equation, and these these characters are just being plugged into this equation. Um, and because you mentioned Kill List and the Ben Wheatley film, and that yes. is is almost a yeah, it's it's very similar to Midsummer. I'd I'd love to hear hear more of your thoughts on that film. Oh yeah, I love Kill List. It's uh, brilliant. Kill List was, it is, and it's it's one that I'm glad I went I went in fairly fairly cold. Um, I knew that it that you know it was like a crime film with like maybe some horror elements, and that's really all I knew. And it, yeah, it just blew me away. And the, I think like the folk, the folk horror genre is especially like fertile territory for this idea of people just being plugged into an equation. So like the, I forget his name, but the main character in Kill List, you know, you could, once you see the whole movie and, you know, speaking of spoiler alerts, here, here comes one, but in once you see the whole thing, you realize that he's always, he's always been that person. He's always, uh, he's always been set up to be uh, the one to sacrifice his family. And there's, there's that amazing scene towards the beginning where he's, uh, he's kind of having like a, like a, a play sword fight with his family, and his. Uh, I think his son correct me if I got this wrong but his son is on like his wife's back and he's having a sword fight with them and that is almost a like a perfect replication of the the final sacrificial scene where his son is like tied to his wife and you know they're the they're that like weird cloaked beast that he has to kill um and that's been that role has been assigned to him. Mm. That that dark organization, you know, whatever, whatever they are, their their motives and and reason for existing is is never explained. Maybe it can't be explained, right? Um, but they've they've been orchestrating things sort of behind the curtains throughout the whole film, and his role was always going to be to be the one to kill the you know. The hunched, the hunchback. I think it's called the hunchback. Uh, he was always going to be the one to kill the hunchback. Yeah. And they've, um, and just like that, I would connect that even to, you know, I write about hereditary. Um, from the very beginning, you know, Peter, the brother character, was being, forces beyond his control were at work, arranging things very specifically so that he would become, you know, the reincarnation of his sister. Um, mm. And, or, you know, cause I'm talking about, we were talking about like folk horror, even in like the wicker man, mm. you know, the, the cop was, was brought to this Island and for the sole purpose of becoming this sacrifice. And there's absolutely nothing he could have done about it to escape that role um but yeah kill list is brilliant and 
um, talking about like playing with genre too, because that's one that has almost like a almost like a 180 from from like you know grimy crime drama to to folk horror like in 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 with a snap and um but somehow it works it you know it's startling but it works it doesn't feel like a it doesn't feel like a trick mm. and i'm not quite sure how ben wheatley pulls that off but it's very impressive i i'd argue that there's uh there's also in his choice of editing his choice of performances the way the performances are it, it it plays out at the very beginning almost like a mike lee film or a or a ken loach film which is which is yeah. and, and they do they do movies which which you would i i think wrongly would be categorized as sort of outside of genres and you know social realism is sort of like you know of course social realism is its own genre it has its own markers the fact that kill list can kind of do that and 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 at the opening that that the scene of him and his wife arguing the party could yeah. easily be from a pinter could easily be from yes. uh some sort of british tv mike lee abigail's party sort of thing from the 70s or 80s it's just very yeah. naturalistic it's very the documentary kind of, almost the cutting yeah. is really off-puttingly unprofessional if you know what i mean it's not smooth yeah. it's not a movie it's not a, a, a slick crime drama and, it, and then it goes into that and then it goes into the horror so it's sort of like yeah it's like three it's like three movies you're totally right and it, by it, far the best thing the, he's ever done as well it's like agreed and um the 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 kitchen sink stuff in the beginning mm. is fantastic and i love the isn't the the op like the opening scene and the first shot is like in medias res where yeah. there it's like mid argument and I think the first line is the the wife like screaming into the camera like there is no fucking money you know they're having this big like and like you know the marriage might end argument and we're just like thrown right into this thing. Um, yeah, exactly, you know? and it's re it's brilliantly I I innovative in the sense that. I, I love films which start with something really big like that, where you don't even know wh who are these people, whose side am I supposed to be on? Who, right. you know, <laughs> I, I've not been introduced. It's sort of like it, it's a, it, it's an unwarranted intimacy that's being forced upon me. I should, right. I, I should be get to know these people before I get to this level of naked honesty. You know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's really off putting, and it's really brilliant. Brilliantly keeps you constantly. Um, off put is that, is, that yeah. right? is that a way i can say it i think so i think that works okay um, what what about there's another film that i, I want to do and i know i, I we've, we've we're coming towards the end now so I'm, I'm very aware i'm just so aware that so much i want to talk about in terms of this book oh, and in terms i'm, ha of these I'm ideas. happy to keep talking yeah <laughs> but um on a sort of another if you like another sort of level a, a, a filmmaker who you mentioned uh, uh, in in your book, uh, Christopher Nolan, of course, has has you know I mean with the Prestige with um, Tenet, you you talk about um, mm -hmm. in terms of him playing with time, in terms of him uh, Memento, of course, plays with time by going backwards. The right. pres Prestige with the doppelganger, Th these all seem to be. You know, I mean, famously has syncope. His, his company is sort of a lab, Esca style labyrinth. Is the right? You know, 
he seems to be absolutely obsessed with fate as well and and the inevitability of of having to fulfill certain roles yeah i think so for sure um yeah tenant was really was really fun to write about i um i have very mixed emotions about that that movie um i like love bits of it and i really really don't like other parts of it but i do think that the the central I love like the centerpiece chase mm. where um, the two timelines kind of merge. And I think that, you know, the, 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 the car chase is playing forwards and backwards at the same time. And like the, the, the forward moving version of the time of the car chase wouldn't be able to occur without the simultaneous backward moving version of the car chase. So again, it's like the the past feeding into the future, the future feeding into the past, and they're they they rely on one another in order to, to exist. Um, which is, I think I think that scene is is brilliant. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the maze because that's another image that I I kind of keep returning to whenever I try to like articulate my thoughts about the book and about certain movies. Of course, there's the hedge maze in in The Shining, mm. um, and there's this sort of like part of the genesis of the book, and I talk about it in the in the introduction. Is um, I kept returning to this idea of the maze and how that sort of embodies this idea of of compatibilism being, you know, you. You do have freedoms, sort of, but within certain constraints. You know, it's like walking through a maze. You can, if you reach a, a T, a T junction, you can go left, you can go right. There's some freedom there, but you can't go straight. Right. And the right. the wall in front of you is like the deterministic, you know, element to to uh, to the choices that you can make in life. Um, and I can't I can't take credit for that. That that's that's something I remember. Um, a philosophy professor of mine talking like using that metaphor when explaining compatibilism and and that memory which really stuck from stuck with me from school um, when I made when I made the connection between that memory and the 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 central role of the hedge maze in the shining that was kind of one of the the initial like yes light bulb moments where um, I started. I was able to start pulling these threads together of these different movies. But I can. I, 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 I'm interested in flipping that as well because you. I, mean, I don't mean by flipping it by by contradicting it or anything, but mm. but but there's also this notion that without obstacles, you don't have you don't. I mean, um, you don't you don't have a map uh, in the sense that. In the sense that if I'm looking at that whiteboard, and I, you know, I, I was really interested in you starting with that sort of the T junction, and the it's a great, you know, you you get to choose, but you don't get to choose your choices. You know, you have yeah the menu, exactly. the menu order off the menu, which I know yeah. as an American is almost a, the one the terrible thing that you can't do. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. Yeah. Um, the um uh so so but but imagine a whiteboard in which you know or imagine the maze in the shining and he's looking down and there's no maze and there's just two people in a sheet of white 
Right. That's also terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, okay, you've got left, right, you can't go ahead, but the, the obstacles are giving you direction. They're giving you something to kick against. They're giving you some, yes. some way of, of gauging where we are in time. Um, going back to the Brian Greene idea of, of time from a sort of quantum level, you know, the heat death of the universe, at the end of the universe, it's when two atoms, will, there won't be two atoms close enough together to communicate information. And at that mm. point, there's no such thing as time. Once you don't get yeah. an interaction, once you don't get an exchange of information, then time has effectively stopped because yeah. there's not nothing is nothing will ever happen from then on. And if nothing's ever going to happen, then how can you tell that this is different from that? Yeah, you know that's yeah that is terrifying. <laughs> the, the, so we uh, so we have to love our fate. We have to love our maze. Yeah, love the maze and the. <laughs> I think no, you're right though. The idea, the idea of there being no maze, and you know the the overhead shot of the shining being replaced with the the mini Wendy and Danny just wandering around like a white void, is horrifying. Because with if you're right, if there is no, if there is no maze, there's nothing to interact with, and if there's nothing to interact with, that's I don't know. Is that that might even be worse than fate? Because in in that case, you're just you're just in like a void and um or you're in you know nothingness um so yeah i mean maybe the maze isn't so bad after all <laughs> we got there <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've we've managed to make fate and doom into something <laughs> which is something actually it's not too bad well which is let's yeah. i think you might have quoted it in your book uh, albert camus talking about uh, the myth of uh, Sisyphus um, yeah. and saying you know well on the bright side he's got something to do <laughs> you <know>? right <laughs> yeah exactly and uh, and there's and there's a, a heroism in continuing to do it yeah you know yeah. And, cho and choosing to continue well, act well I don't know it's not really a choice but in 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 performing the thing that you're forced to do with like honor and dignity that there's that there's a beauty to that so um yeah i do talk about that in the book and i i connected to um uh scorsese's after hours right um, yes another and, another brilliant film yeah oh i love it i love after hours but yeah i mean like um uh, like Sisyphus rolling the, the rock back up the hill, you know, Paul Hackett goes back to work and turns on the computer and, you know, he gets, he gets back to it. And yeah. there's, there's a kind of, there's a kind of heroism to that. I, I like to think though, that the minute that shot, well, I mean, you, you mentioned it, that he sort of disappears from the, from the, from the shot, but yeah. it's almost like the minute he's like ten minutes later, he's in the bathroom sleeping on the in the, in the queue. <laughs> in the bathroom, like, oh, no way I'm going to be able to work all day. Yeah, the, this, this was a mistake. Today's going to be a nap day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sleeping at the desk. That's funny. Brilliant. Listen, uh, Tom, let's have a let's have a recommended book from you. Yeah. Um, so, like many of your previous guests i'm gonna cheat horribly and i'm gonna give three if that's okay that's fine um so and i've got two that were very influential in terms of 
my writing of fate and film mm. and they the, so i've got uh pippin's filmed thought which is i think i haven't read a ton of philosophy on film books but a pretty good amount and that's i think that's the best one i've ever read by far um he has this brilliant analysis of um cirque's is it all that heaven allows is yes. that the, the, yes, the cirque so. film yeah um so that's one that um, just in terms of like exploring the intersections between film and philosophy, I think that one is is just fantastic. Um, Maureen Foster's Alien in the Mirror was very helpful for me when I was writing the Glazer chapter. Um, and that whole book is about almost exclusively about under the skin. And I love under the skin. So I, I, I like I just ate that book up. Um, and then. And then uh, a book that I just had fun reading, um, not really connected to any of, of my writing, is uh, American Twilight. And it's a collection, and it's, it's, uh, the subtitle is The Cinema of, of Toby Hooper. And it's, um, it's like a reassessment of Toby Hooper's work. Um, and there's a, a little bit on Texas Chainsaw, but... 98% of the book is on his other movies. And I love, uh, I love like the underdog um, interpretation, like reassessment of some of these directors work, because when you look at someone like Toby Hooper, you're like, Oh yeah, he made, you know, the best horror film ever possibly. And then, and then like never did anything remotely close to that ever again. Um, so he's kind of written off. But that collection is I really loved reading because, you know, you have you have writers defending like the Mangler, his uh, his movie about like the kill the killer laundry machine or whatever. Right. And um, and I yeah, I, I love when when people reassess stuff that's that's sometimes written off as just like garbage um, and saying like, well, wait a minute, maybe maybe there is something Maybe there is something else here that's that's going on that's interesting and worth talking about. Um, and you know, when I when I finished reading the chapter on the Mangler, I was like, huh, maybe maybe the movie really is about like worker exploitation and you know and all this other stuff. And um, anyway, it made me it made me look at his 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 work in a in a very in a different way, um, which I love because. He's one where a lot of his stuff is kind of written off post Texas Chainsaw, but does it does it have a chapter on Life Force? Yes, there's a chapter on Life Force, um, as like a as, as as sort of like his that's his Hammer film, right? Basically, uh, right. And um, I think he's even called it that himself. Mm. Uh, and then there's there's chapters on like uh, oh. His last one, uh, Jin. Um, there's a whole chapter on Jin. Um, so yeah, just it made me it made me want to go and watch Jin, which I thought would never happen. <laughs> so if a book can do that to me, I think that's pretty impressive. I'm quite fascinated by these film directors who the who the trajectory of their careers, you know, are very sort of marked. Uh, I you know, um, I'll give you another example. Would be someone like. Uh, William Friedkin would be someone who who has had yeah. that sort of 1970s was huge and then couldn't get arrested for the you know and then made 
sort of fairly disappointing films and now has had something of a resurgence. Who's the other? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, in Italy, Dario Argento sort of, you know, mm. couldn't seem to put a foot wrong for, for, for a decade. And then yeah. somehow kind of, I don't know, just completely seemed to lose it. Um, yeah. I mean, I know that some people say his last one is supposed to be something of a return to form, but it's like, you know, it's like waiting for the, the good Bob Dylan album in the eighties. It's just like, it's just not good. You, you, even if it, you know, our definition of good is going to have to change. If we're, right. Uh, you know, right. If, if we're not going to be really disappointed. Friedkin's a, Friedkin's a really interesting one. Um, I know one, one that I know that like he thinks is a very good film and a lot of people don't think it is, but it's been like reassessed. It's been reassessed some in the past maybe decade or so. Would be like cruising, mm. um, which is, which is certainly a very problematic film, um, but a really fascinating film. So I like, I like, yeah, I like, I like the, I like a good fascinating failure. Those are always a lot of fun. And I, I really like cruising. I, I, I'll stand up for cruising. I, I think it's good. Um, yeah, cruising's good. It has a, it's, that's another one that has a very strange kind of like baffling ending. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, a little bit of him sort of rehearsing or re, redoing his French Connection ending, which seemed to be something that he could never get over. He would, I think mm. Live and Die in LA has a similar sort of, you know, um, has one of those endings where well he kind of spoiler for live and die in la he kind of kills off his main character in a really surprising way sort of preempts yeah. your you know uh your expectation yeah yeah to live and die in la and then cruising both have the like the new the new protagonist very like moodily wearing sunglasses right <laughs> yes isn't that kind of the yeah. the image um yeah i love when i love when directors like just re- like uh, like shamelessly embrace redoing the same ending over and over like i i love that paul schrader has has copied the ending to pick pickpocket at least 3 times and i think i think that's great like i like i don't i just think that's fascinating i i love when you can you can tell they're like obsessed with it and and like you go i went into the card counter and I was like, I wonder if he's going to do a riff on the pickpocket ending with this one. And he did. And it wasn't surprising, but I loved it. And it, yeah, that's. It's like their fault. Their, their obsession. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's All the little signature at the end, a little flourish as they, uh, they finish their work. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, it's been it's been brilliant talking to you, Thomas. I've really, really uh loved the book and it was it was a there was a moment where you mentioned Derrida and and I'd read I've I I've you know, I've been to the temple of high postmodernism and, and I shriveled I shriveled at the <laughs> at the naming of the one who must not be named. And I thought oh, oh, yeah. oh no, where are we going? Where are we going? <laughs> Please. Uh yeah. but but you managed to 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 talk about really interesting 
complicated ideas, but in a way which is very, very accessible and very, um, and just, you know, made me want to go and watch these movies again. And as you can tell from this conversation, mm-hmm. made me think of yeah. other movies you could apply uh, those ideas to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. And uh, that, that's, that means a lot. And I had a blast talking. So yeah, thanks for having me. Terminism and film and so much more and we got really got into it i'm glad i'm glad uh, i had the opportunity to talk to tom and hopefully we'll be having a further conversation some some way along the line uh we're coming up to our 100th episode we're episode 95 i think at the moment so hopefully um as we go forward uh, uh hopefully we're going to have some exciting guests leading up to the to the hundredth and then uh and then loads of exciting guests afterwards as well going forward uh so that would be really that's really good if you if you yourself have written a book or you know somebody who has or you have a recommendation uh, of someone that you would like me to interview um a writer who you particularly admire and would like to hear them talk about their work then by all means get in touch with me the twitter uh, account that i have is open um to, the dms are open or you can email me at uh well, at you can email me dr john t d r j o h n t y at gmail.com okay um thank you very much for the support you give i really appreciate it i have some great uh people out there andy english kai ross um uh, some uh, brilliant italian uh, listeners like andrea um loads of people loads of people so um so thank you so much for for all the support and i will talk to you next week take care you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.